So, dear friends, since so many of you have asked me to record more educational type of podcasts on specific topics, I thought Portwine would be one of the most timely one, considering the upcoming D5 diploma exams in January. George Nunes, my guest today, is the regional manager of the Symington family estates in Asia, providing deep insider knowledge about the making of Portwine as well as about the trade itself. George has already appeared on the Wine Ghost podcast in the 66th episode when he gave tips about passing the diploma with an A. And I must say he is an excellent communicator and professional. You can learn about the varieties, the vineyard work in the Douro, the different extraction methods and styles, the contradiction around the beneficio and about current market trends regarding port wine. I learned a lot and I hope you will do the same. To be able to continue making these episodes in the future and keep the Wine Ghost podcast alive, you can help support the channel with a small monthly contribution on Patreon via the link in the description. In return for only $4 a month, you get to know my guest list in advance, you get to submit your own questions for them as well as joining our monthly remote drinking evening when we talk, drink and share our favorite wines with a passionate circle. Any help is greatly appreciated. But now, enjoy this episode and learn about port wine. So, George, good to see you again, man. Thanks for taking the time. Good to see you, Mate. It's been a while. Uh, thanks for having me again. If uh, listeners haven't listened to uh, the first episode we uh, recorded with George, uh, it's worth listening to, especially if you're uh, studying for the WSET diploma, because uh, George uh, was an exceptional student and uh, he gave a lot of uh, tips for students like me to pass the diploma successfully. But now we approach another topic, which George is an expert of, basically. Can you talk a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I'm uh, born in Porto um, in a wine family company, not particularly good company, to be honest, in terms of quality. Studied winemaking to try to improve it, didn't quite work out in terms of the business. Uh, I studied in the Dole Valley, Owen Alls University there. Um, and then after one year in a different experience, I joined the Simington family. Um, so, which is, um, you know, definitely one of the great port, ha- port houses and port names, a number of port houses under our umbrella. And we can dive into that as well. Um, I had a mixed job of winemaking and sales for a certain period of time. Eventually, it, uh, it became a full on sales uh, work. Um, and I've been doing the Asia Pacific for the Simmons uh, for now close to 15 years, uh, but based first in Hong Kong for 10 years, and I moved last year to Singapore. Um, and um, so basically now regional manager for the company. So in terms of you know background winemaking, um, not just on the port, but even on the door, still wines are involved, um, but. Um, if you would ask me what my expertise would be, I would say the region and the sales now of the export business. So, George, uh, from a professional standpoint, what would you say that which are the critical factors that uh, uh, makes actually port wine so special? And why is it so different in the in the fortified wine segment of the wine world? Okay, well, let me see if I can if I can break it down into 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 different sectors, because obviously there's, mm-hmm. there's quite a few things to touch base on. Um, I will start by saying that port is a is a fortified, starting with the basics. So port is a fortified wine. Uh, it's fortified with other famous stuff. 
cherries, Maderos, and Asal, the BDNs of this world. Um, and fortification means strengthening the Pugadan country. So, uh, as all the other ones, there is the um, uh, the element of alcohol addition, a spirit, an additional spirit to the uh, the wines. In the case of port, the the addition of spirit happens halfway through the fermentation. So there are others like for the sherry that happen at the end. In our case, it happens really halfway through the fermentation. So we stop the fermentation by killing the yeasts and keeping the residual sugar. Um, and the the, dip, the timing the timing of the addition makes a big difference. That's one of the reasons why different house styles um, will will come through. Uh, it's obviously because of the vineyards, no doubt, but it's also because of the, the sweetness style. So if you stop the fermentation earlier, you tend to have a sweeter style because you get more residual sugar. For example, this is this would be the Grand Sport style. If you let it ferment a bit longer, you're going to end up with lower residual sugar and a drier style. This would be a, the Dow's style, for example. Um, and so depending on where you stop it, you add a higher level of spirit or lower level of spirit. Um, and I think this is an important aspect, the, the quality of the spirit, right? So we're, 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 we use 77% alcohol, grape origin, so wine distilled, neutral, colorless spirit, and freshly distilled. Um, because it is 77% alcohol, unlike other fortifiers, which are closer to 96%, we tend, and, and also because we have higher alcohol than others, tend to be on a higher scale than a fortified world with usually 20% alcohol. We do have a higher proportion of spirit added than other fortifiers. And so if you're, I'm jumping already here in terms of sort of profile and blind tasting, but if you are trying to identify a port, if it is quite spirity, if you do notice the the the, the aguardiente, the the, the the eau de vie, if you want, so the spirity side, that tends to be more of a port, port, port uh, profile than other fortifiers. Um, so in terms of winemaking, you know, port isn't a complicated wine to to make in the winery. It's naturally stable. No more re-fermentation happens. Um, malolactic really doesn't happen post fortification because you know obviously um, bacteria doesn't quite develop there anymore. Uh, yeast, so forget about any re-fermentation issues. Um, so even in terms of stabilization of the product, port is a naturally stable product. So even there, port is an easy wine to make. The the difficult bit is what happens in the vineyard. Because I'm not sure if uh, I can't remember Mate, have you been to the door? No, not yet, unfortunately. I, I I strongly I probably did last time and I invite you again. I strongly recommend you to pay a visit to the Doro Valley and everyone that is listening. Um it truly is a, a stunning place. Um but stunning is is great to look at. To grow the grapes, it's not so much because it is the largest mountain vineyard in the world. Um, very difficult to to, uh, to to tame the mountains and the steepness into farmable land, thus the terraces, terrace vineyards. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty inhospitable place. You know, we, it's continental climate. We get, um, particularly if you go further east, you get 40, 45 degrees. I think we got 48 Celsius this summer. 
Um, and it, you know, in the winter it's minus five. Snow is possible um, and very dry. Uh, and so, if you, on top of that, you've got, you know, on top of all the sort of terrain, you've got really complicated conditions for vines to grow. Um, so, so fortunately, the authorized varieties are very suitable for the terrain. Um, and not all of them are good. We have a few selected grapes that I'm sure we'll be talking about. Um, so it's, you know, it's all, um, these, um, these varieties are really the sequel, you could say. Mm-hmm. I think we've, some people have tried planting other varieties and they, they do tend to struggle. Um, and the, I think one aspect I'd like to touch base on when I'm, when I'm talking about port is that people think about port immediately as a sweet high alcohol. And I always say, don't forget about the concentration. The concentration of flavor is greater than most wines because of, again, the heat, the drought, and the natural release. And, and, and that's, that's a key component of the port profile. It's richness of flavors, not just the sweetness, not just the alcohol, but richness of flavor. Um, very much in a nutshell, and I'm sure we're going to dive into more details here, but this is kind of a, a, a nice overview. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you. And uh, also the grapes, obviously the five main grapes, they are kind of critical to know, but uh, I'm sure we can also dive into maybe other grapes like Tinta Amarela, which is not, the, or Suosau, which are not among the five basic ones, but First, let's concentrate on the five main ones. So, what uh, what is the most important uh, one, and and what are the most important ones, and why? What is the critical quality of these grapes? What makes them perfect for suited to the region and for the production of port? So, the most the most famous is Torriga Nacional. Um, that is the one that grabs the attention, uh, and I think justifiably because it does produce. Um, really spectacular wines um the it is not however the most planted the plantings are growing so you you will see um a lot of a lot of the vines being replaced before you know how progressive that is happening but it's still a small proportion actually um i haven't i don't have the date the the updated uh, figures but it's still below toriga franca which is the widest planter Tinta Baroque and Tinta Burish, for instance. So these three are um, uh, more widely planted than Torriga Nacional. And Torriga Nacional is a variety that um, produces wines incredibly deep colors. So they're, they're black, purple colors. That's an indication. You know, few, few varieties get to sort of black, purple color. Torriga Nacional does that. Um, tends to be very small berries, so very thick skin, so high ratio skin juice, and you get a lot of tannin, get a lot of, uh, again, a lot of color, a lot of tannin, naturally high acidity, even considering uh, uh, the region, um, and a lot of black fruit, as you would expect from a, a, a pretty hot climate, but also a typical violet, sort of flowery bergamot, which is also another one that's a rock rose, which is not it's very typical for me to be honest to actually know what it smells like, but that's kind of the the, the in the books, if you want. But violets for sure, the very typical aroma of, of Toriga Nacional. So really powerful grape and gives us a lot of backbone, a lot of structure. Um, and when we get to vintage board levels, um, Toriga Nacional is a, a fundamental base 
uh, to produce that. Um, the other great variety I would probably say would be Toriga Franca. Um, Toriga Franca, in terms of ripening, Toriga Nacional tends to be a early mid ripening. Toriga Franca tends to be a little bit later ripening, and it it is a grape a grape variety that is also deep color. Perhaps not as deep, but it is very deep color. Tends to be a little fleshier, a little richer. You know, it, it, it might sound a bit weird, but it's, it's almost like the Merlot in a in a in a Bordeaux blend in the left bank, if you want. So that sort of gives fills up the holes that Toriga Nacional might have. Toriga Nacional might give it an austere sometimes. Toriga Franca gives it a bit of mouthfeel, a bit of richness, um, and because it is the most widely planted, it is fundamental to, across different ranges. So it provides flesh for wines that are a little bit easier drinking, but it provides the flesh also to the top wines as well. The, the, you, you, you vary more the Toriga Nacional level according to where you are in the spectrum of quality of port rather than Toriga Franca. Because Toriga Nacional, there's less of it. So we do tend to focus Nacional on the higher ones. Um, Tita Barocca uh, produces wines that are uh, high sugar, so a lot of potential alcohol. Ripens really early. It's usually the first one to get into the winery. Um, so a lot of fruit, not a lot of backbone, not a lot of, not a lot of acidity. Really good for everyday ports. Uh, gives juiciness, gives fruit. Um, never really quite gets to the level of vintage port. And then Tinta Rurige would be the fourth main one. Um, and that one tends to be, you know, it's Tempranillo. It's a very different clones, but it is Tempranillo. So um, if you know your uh, um, your your theory from Spain, you know, Temprano, so early ripening. So mm -hmm. it tends to be harvested more or less at the same time as Toriga Nacional. Um, and it produces wines more red, more red-fruited, and they can be quite tannic. So it's, it's mm -hmm. usually quite good for, for, for blending and giving a bit of structure, but you know, composing a little bit of the red black fruit with some more red fruit. Um, th those four truly are the, the the main ones. Then, of course, you've got Tintucan, which is a pretty late. It's usually harvested after uh, um, the Toriga Franca. Um, Tintucan. Not a lot of people use a lot of Tintucan. Um, uh, it's more about you know, give, give, because of the, the, the acidity retention, um, it works quite uh, well. Um, the Tinta Amarela, a little also sort of similar to, to Tinto Count, doesn't always quite get into the blend. Um, so when we talk about the sort of the main five varieties, often, so I heard people saying Tinta Amarela, I heard people say Tinto Count, so it always depends a bit. Okay. Um, and Tinta Amarela um, has the issue of being quite disease prone, very compact bunches. Um, but it gives some sort of herb, herbaceous aromas. Could have some good structures and good tannins as well. So very good in blends. Um, and then you've got two varieties that are more recent in terms of the uh, their use in, in blends, which is the Sozao and the Alicante Boucher. You start to see a lot more of these two being used. Sozao has been around for a long time. Alicante Boucher is, is more recent. Um, but they provide high acid, a lot of color. Uh, those are the two mm -hmm. main thing, main reasons why we use these. Um, so, the, in a nutshell, this is a this is the red varieties. 
Um, the wide variety is a completely different spectrum, um, and and it's a much smaller uh, spectrum of grape varieties. Um, and Muscatel Gallego, which is Muscatel uh, Tigran, uh, it's the sort of the same the same uh, uh, grape makes a pretty big component um, in 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 the blends. You've got Viozinho, you've got Rabigato, you've got Malvasiafin, of course, you've got mm. Gouveia, the Godelho. These are sort of the five main ones. Um, but whites, we tend to talk less about what the grape varieties produce in the blends um, because the styles of white are far more reduced. Um, and so we it, it's, it tends to be more of a how much muscatel are you going to add for flavor mm. rather than anything. Hopefully that gives a sort of a, an overview of it. Yeah, sure. If you want to maybe conceptualize the grape varieties, I think it's a very useful analogy what you provided with the kind of Cabernet Sauvignon is more like a Turiga Nacional, right? In in a, in, a, in terms of structure yeah. and also that would be Turiga Franca, maybe a Cabernet Franc or a Merlot, a bit more uh, luscious and not as backbone so to say, or not as structured. I think a lot of people would remember these varieties uh, more consistently and, 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 and better in terms of these uh, comparisons. And uh, also about the vineyard work, because you also already touched on this uh, beautiful area, which I'm surely going to visit. But um, other than um, the beauty, uh, I think there are some some aspects which are critical probably in the uh, vineyard. Uh, also because of this heroic viticulture, basically what they are doing there about the hand harvest and, and about the soil types. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this specialty? So it is a... It, you know, we talked about the, the climate. Um, we talk about rainfall. Just to give you an idea, it starts about a thousand millimeters of rainfall ish on the west part, on the Baixo Corgo. Um, so there's three subregions: uh, Baixo Corgo, Cima Corgo, Douro Superior. So the Baixo Corgo, the most western part, still a bit more Atlantic influenced. Um, so you, you you're a bit rainier, um, a little cooler. Um, and then you jump into the Simacor, who tends to be considered as the prime area uh, uh, for port and rainfall, probably around the 600, 700 millimeters a year. And then you go into the Toro Superior, so further east towards Spain. And there are areas with 300 millimeters of rainfall. So it's, it's you know, it's pre-desert uh, uh, conditions. So it, it, quite a big uh, uh, variability in terms of weather. In terms of soil, the Douro is a bit more homogeneous. Um, so schist is the the main uh, uh, type of, of soil that we have. Um, there are pockets of granite that actually, if the granite proportion is higher, is a, of a certain percentage, and that area sits outside of the Douro Valley already. Um, so so there are areas where you're you're not allowed to grow because the percentage of granite is higher than the percentage of schist. So schist is, is we believe, uh, at least this is sort of this is historical in the port world, schist is the base for what we're looking for in the port world. Very low organic matter, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's built, so the bedrock is built vertically. And so, you know, you, if, you, if, you, if you pick up a bit of schist and you can actually sort of hit it on the floor, it actually breaks into leaves you know it's it's very it's 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 uh, you can you can see those uh, different layers and that allows even though it's incredibly poor in organic matter it allows the roots of the vines to grow really deep
deep, um, you know, several meters down, um, to underground underground water reserves, um, you know, when they are when there are, um, and and get the water they need. Um, and of course, there's always the element of you know, the color because it's quite a dark uh, rock, so you know, ripeness during the night as well. So um, that element comes into into fruition as well. So the the other element, and I, I mentioned before, the concentration comes from the lower yields. Um, irrigation is now allowed. I think it's an important development in the region. So it is allowed to have, uh, you know, with Simington, we have now uh, a, a substantial number of uh, hectares of vineyard with drip irrigation installed. Um, so it still needs a permit. So we still need to go through the uh, uh, IVDP, uh, the Doro and Port Wine Institute, to make sure that you know we're following the, the rules of the of the uh, DOC in terms of uh, water use. But it is allowed, uh, and so that's, I, I I personally believe it is a a good development uh, uh, for the region. Um, so, but naturally, so there's no there's no real reason in the door of to do green harvest because naturally our yields are very very low. Mm. Uh, we're talking on average about three thousand liters per hectare, uh, you know, versus you know a Burgundy which is five thousand. So this is the average of the region. So we're not even talking about the the old vines or the top locations, um, and so the that low yields, those low yields, lead to that very rich, very concentrated, um, and in high sugar, we have to admit, in high sugar sort of um, uh, um, uh, grapes at the time of the harvest. The the viticulture is is heroic. Yes, it is uh, because it is. Um, I'm not going to say it's impossible to mechanize. It, it, it is possible to mechanize. Um, and, you know, the building of the terraces allows a small tractor to go around that um, uh, that row. Um, if, if you if you plant vineyards below 30 degrees, if you have a, a lower than 30 degrees steep hill, you can actually plant what we call vinha ao alto. Uh, that's vertical vineyards. So that is very much mechanizable. So you can have a machine. You can even, if you wanted, you can actually, if, if it's probably a little lower than that, but you could machine harvest. The, the issue really is a scale. You know, how much hectares of vertical vineyard would you need to have to justify purchasing a harvesting machine? That's the issue. Um, so that's why it's, if you would look at it from a from a conceptual point of view, yes, you could mechanize parts of it. From a financial point of view, would you? Probably not. Right? Because you, you would have to put up front a high cost for the harvesting machine for no reason. And that's why. 99.99% of the vineyards are hand harvested, for instance. Um, a small tractor could, can go into the vineyard, and if we need, you know, if you're spraying, whatever, you, you can do that. Harvesting is a different uh, experience altogether. Um, and so we are, um, at least that I'm aware of, we are sitting and pioneering a, a harvesting machine, which is already working, and we were working with it this vineyard. Uh, with some pretty good results, um, trying to sort of having a, a parallel arm that goes around the the the, the, the terrace, uh, mm -hmm. the, the row next to the the actual terrace, um, mm -hmm. and you know just vibrates and picks and and does it really well. Um, so that may be a new thing that will help with the because otherwise we have to rely on uh, you know, thousands and thousands. Uh, during the harvest to do a pretty hard work 
which is carrying 25 kilo boxes on their backs and, um, and, and you know, back breaking stuff with very hot conditions. So not easy. And 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 thus the, the your term was was completely justified, considering uh, how what what the conditions really are. Mm. And the other two vineyard layouts, which was one you were already mentioning, Vinya Alto, and uh, the other two are Socalcos and Patamares. What are the advantages and disadvantages and the possibilities for these other two uh, layouts? So the Vinya, sorry with the Vinya Alto we were talking before. So the vertical mm -hmm. vineyard, Vinya Alto, is, like I said, below 30 degrees. You, you could do that. Like I said, mechanizable, higher density plantation if you, if you need. Probably do five to six thousand vines per hectare. There, um, the big issue is erosion because you, if you you know if you have if you have a, a vertical vineyard, you end up mm. with rain yeah. with wind, just feeling that erosion happening. So you do have to um, you know dirt up um, at, at occasionally to rebuild that. That's one of the issues. Um, if you have the, a higher grade than that, then but the mark is currently the modern option. When I say modern, mm -hmm. it's uh, it's from the seventies, early eighties, when the but the were introduced. Basically, it's it's a bulldozer that goes in and builds um, uh, terraces by machine, um, no stone walls. It's just basically you know, land uh, creating these terraces, varying in in size. But you know, you will see that there are maybe from maybe two meters to about five, six, sometimes it, 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 it's bigger. Um, and each terrace is built either on one row or two rows. And that also usually depends on the steepness as well. So the higher the steepness, let's say above 45 degrees, it tends to have one row only, while sort of the more intermediate um, steepness tends to have two. There are a lot of discussions here because if you think about it, a terrace, a terrace is built inwards. So that the, the, the water doesn't flow out and that would cause erosion. It flows in and then it's drained on the side of the other terrace. So if you think about it, the terrace inside is much more fertile than the, the sorry, the row inside is much more fertile than the row outside because the water is going its way. And so it creates a little unbalance within two rows mm -hmm. that are next to each other. So it's not perfect. That's why a lot of people prefer to build one row per terrace. At least you have a sort of um, consistency across the various uh, terraces. And also another argument, uh, or in terms of uh, what the book states, that the sun exposure is also not the same in, if you have two rows, because uh, on, on the outside row, you have, of course, much more intense sunlight right. exposure. Absolutely. Well, 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 well thought. Um, it's exactly right. So again, one further element of inconsistency. I know we can all mm -hmm. talk about you know, it's great to have variability within a vineyard. Like, yes, absolutely, but not within the same parcels. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's basically the same harvesting thing. And if you yeah. have one which is much more green with a much more vegetative growth than the other one, and one is more sun exposure, then your canopy management needs to be completely reformulated. And so it's a, mm. it's a bit of a challenge. Um, mm. And thus, there's a few, I think there's a few antagonizing contrasting opinions amongst viticulturists. I'm not a viticulturist, so I tend to stay away from that and just you know, state <laughs> the facts. Um, but I know that there are a few that prefer one way and the other one. Um, uh, but, but, but the reality is uh, this does tend to happen. Um, 
erosion obviously is is lower, uh, but density of plantation tends to be quite low as well. So your mm. your yield will eventually. It depends. Obviously, the roots will tend to be a little bit bigger, and perhaps you can compensate per vine. But but it does tend to be uh, um, a, a low, a slightly lower yield on that than compared to to the Pinalo. The sukalpus are the historical. So the sukalpus mm. were uh, were terraces, but um, man-made uh, stone walls, and so those are um, still historical. And wherever they exist, we have to keep them. We have to maintain them. Uh, part of the UNESCO World mm-hmm. Heritage Site uh, uh, mandates. To, so we have a lot of issues with storms and spring storms. They can be quite complicated, and so it, it breaks away all those walls. We have to do them. It's just part of the heritage. Um, and they're they're less easily mechanizable. Um, they 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 tend to they, they actually tend to have a a, a high, slightly higher density of plantation coming up than the than the, the marsh. But it's it's very hard to mechanize. And it's one of the mm-hmm. big challenges of the survival. Um But but it's part of the landscape. So it's 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 the historical thing. And after these uh, heroes <laughs> managed to bring all these uh, grapes into the winery. Uh, one of the critical aspects would be the the handling of the juice and the extraction, right? Because you have not a lot of time to to extract all those uh, beautiful color and uh, all those beautiful flavors from the grapes. So can you talk a little bit about the extraction techniques? Because I think this is also one of the key elements in, in the port wine making. Um, you, you said it well, Mati, and I think that's the key thing about port wine making. I said, I said before it was easy, right? Mm-hmm. But there is one difficulty, which is time. Um, because when we fortify, we press, and we're pressing the skins off the juice, um, and we're fortifying the juice, and then the press uh, the juice as well. Um, but we don't have a lot of time to extract what we need from the skins. And so uh, historically, you know, we've, we've all, you've all studied, or even if you haven't studied wines, you've probably heard of the, the Portuguese, you know, the treading, the feet treading. We still use it in the lagarde, uh, the open tank, stone, traditionally granites or concrete, a few. And, and so these traditionally were uh, filled up during the, the picking day. And then the same people they were harvesting would go into the tank for about three, four hours and really tread uh, the grapes. Um, the, the reason why we do this is still a very good way to make pork is because you, you, the, the Lagan allows you to increase the ratio of skin to juice content rather than a typical stainless steel tank, fermentation tank, which is more cylindrical, more vertical, which is, has a more reduced area of skin and juice. Uh, so the Lagan allows a fast, effective uh, treading and extraction over a, short, a very short period of time. Um, and, and, you know, it's, all, it's the only real way of getting to a, a color like what you would see in a young vintage port, which is just you know, super black, inky color. You wouldn't be able to extract that a normal fermentation. Uh, we remember we did it, we did a few tests. Um, so sorry, let me open a, another topic, which is the modern ways of doing it. There are a number of wineries doing different methods. Um, the the Simitans use a, a robotic Lagarde, a fully stainless steel mechanized uh, uh, tank, temperature control with silicon feet, brushes with about 70 kilos pressure, can go all the way down. The tread can just uh, punch down, so, so not 
actually so during fermentation cap goes up all we need mm -hmm. is to punch down a bit so you have those two uh, levels of work works really well a few others for example taylor they do a an adapted on stone uh, uh, lagar with a robotic uh, hmm. punch down mechanism so every port house has kind of a different approach to it um when we did this and this is you know, I joined the company a while ago, seven, almost 17 years ago. And at the beginning, I remember we were showing wines made in traditional lagar, same grapes, literally same grapes. We vinified it in three different ways, and we were comparing, and we were doing a traditional lagar, granite, stainless steel, robotic lagar, and plunger. And the plunger tank mm -hmm. is basically a, a cylindrical tank, but rather than relying on pumping overs, you were relying on a hydraulic arm that would mm -hmm. come down and touch that. Mm -hmm. And from the three of them, the, the plunger tank was the lowest color. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could see it very clearly, the same level, the, the same grapes, would, you would extract a lot less. And mm -hmm. then between the other two, the, the, the differences were very minute. And, and mm -hmm. so we were, you know, it was clear that the Lagar was the most effective way. Traditional, robotic, kind of, uh, um, really sort of, Regardless of the format, the result was very similar. So, mm -hmm. so we knew that we had a, a winning formula. Um, the there are other ways, um, and so Lagards tend to focus on grapes that have the quality to give a premium port, you know, a, a late mm -hmm. bottle vintage upwards. If you're producing volume, if you're producing ruby, you find ruby, fine tonic, fine white volume. So there are other ways. Um, for example, you know, a, a pumping over tank or the auto vinificators uh, which, mm. which is the one that uses the release of co2 to to automatically um create a, a, a basically releases co2 by releasing the pressure juice comes out on the on the skins and you've got an automatic you don't have to do anything um and that tends to sort of be a, a little harsher okay um but because we don't uh, we, we, you know, we, we focus a lot more on the entry at level. It is okay that we, we, you know, we don't have the same sort of fine, deep extraction that you get from all of that. Mm -hmm. So we're quite happy mm -hmm. in focusing on the moment. So those are usually the, the methods of, of vinification you see in the door. Um, mm -hmm. Don't think that everybody does Lagarde because Lagarde's, you know, tends either, either they were expensive to make if they're stainless steel. Or they rely a lot on human right? mm. and mm. so not all grapes have the quality to justify that level of investment. And so mm -hmm. there, there, there is a lot of poor producing out of it the normal stainless steel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, is the temperature play a critical role in that extraction? Because you also mentioned that in Symington you have this uh, temperature controlled wet for that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I didn't. I didn't mention that. I going back a little bit further. I think most of well, we we do stem one hundred percent. I'm mm -hmm. sure there are a few producers that leave partial full stems. I, I don't know personally, um, but we do stem one hundred percent. Natural fermentation is the norm in the in the dollar for port. Mm -hmm. um, that I know of, no one really inoculates with yeasts uh, for port. So, uh, but again, I I I won't say. Nobody does it because I can't speak to for other producers. We don't. It's all natural fermentation. Temperature is a really important aspect of the port because 
at higher temperatures, uh, higher temperatures, as you know, you you increase the, the the degrading or the destruction of the skin cells and the extraction levels. So at higher alcohol, um, when you know, particularly when you get to a certain level of of, of fermentation, you have higher alcohol. If you manage to increase the temperature, you will be able to extract more stuff. Yes, you might lose some flavors, particularly in an open tank. That that does happen in Fermentation tends to be a bit more vigorous at higher temperatures, um, but it is really fundamental to achieve that. A normal lagar without temperature control can go up to you know, 32, 33 degrees. Um, so we do tend to prefer somewhere around 28, 29, perhaps 30. Mm-hmm. So we do tend to cool down our lagar to achieve that temperature. So if you go up too much, then temperature increases too much, too fast. So the fermentation rate increases fast, and you end up with less time to extract. Uh-huh. If you ferment at too low temperature, you're not maximizing your level of extraction. Uh-huh. So we do believe that 28 to 30 is the right level um, to extract and give us the time to extract. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we don't have issues in the port world, we don't have issues like um, uh, stock fermentations mm-hmm. because we want to, we want to stop it anyway. We want the, the fermentation at some point to be stuck. Um, that's the point of fortification. Um, so you know, even if temperatures get increase a little bit high, we're not, not going to have an issue with yeasts uh, uh, halfway mm-hmm. through fermentation. Mm-hmm. And you typically do the fortification after two days. Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. So we we press. Um, uh, the, when we measure the sugar level and we say this is the moment, we also mm-hmm. have an idea of what the potential alcohol mm-hmm. is already in that must. If we knew the initial sugar, we know the sugar we want for this house style. The difference will have created X percent of alcohol, which means that from X to 19 or 20 percent, that's the spirit that we need mm-hmm. to add. It's a kind of an easy calculation there. And then we Rack the juice out, usually by gravity. Uh, it's amazing uh-huh. to to think that port uh, has you know wineries with two hundred years were already were were already worked under gravity, which is quite 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 cool. Um, so if you you will you will look at the lagards are above, and then we go into another room, and all the big bats are below. So by mm-hmm. gravity, the juice is is brought down into these uh, balsades, these gigantic barrels um, and the spirit is being pumped into that big big vat at the same time so you're immediately mm-hmm. homogenized and you're immediately stopping the fermentation um, the skins are then either shoveled or out of work trust me <laughs> out of a traditional a traditional um, stone tank or if it's a robotic one you press a button hydraulic arm raises uh, and the skins mm-hmm. can be easily sent uh, into a, a screw and then uh-huh. pumped into the press. Um, the One of the big differences in the port world compared to other ones is that we love our press one. Uh, sometimes there's still a lot in mm-hmm. the grips that we would like for a while. And so we really tend to like, press, high pressing, and mm-hmm. use that juice uh, that that must immediately fortify, and 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 often usually often sort of added immediately to the to the to the rack mm-hmm. juice. 
because it's just going to bring that extra element of tenant yeah. power flavor um and and so we we tend to use uh, continuous press uh, for port not so much pneumatic don't know if anyone is using pneumatic presses for port usually it's just a continuous it's uh-huh, quite uh-huh. you know quite severe and do you do that for all kind of ports or for all styles? Usually, yes. Usually, yes. Uh-huh. Even for vintage port, for example, you kind of would, probably would expect, uh, you know, yeah. vintage probably are careful with pressing. No, probably vintage, we need it even more. Yeah. We need that extra texture, body, flavor, tannin. And mm. press wine brings you all that. Mm. So it is, a, it is a key element for, for backbone. And is the aguardente more aromatic than other spirits used for uh, fortified wines? And uh, does it come mostly from the region or somewhere else? So it it um, it does tend to have a bit more aroma than others. And mm-hmm. the more you distill, the more purity you get. And yeah. thus, you know, a 96% spirit, even if it's the same origin, tends to be more neutral than a 77%. So we mm-hmm. do tend to be a bit more, uh, there's a bit more more, more aroma mm-hmm. you want on the, on the, on the board spirit. Uh, that in other spirits for other fortifiers. Um and in terms of sourcing, um, it's it's a it's a but it actually doesn't necessarily need to be Portuguese. Um, for a while, we we did use uh, from from France from cognac. Um, mm-hmm. We have changed that two years ago um, to be Portuguese spirits. So now we have uh, Portuguese suppliers, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's for the there are a few distilleries in the door, but if you think about the financials, uh, you know, if you're producing 3,000 liters on average of an expensive region, a really expensive region to grow grapes, uh, far mm. more than people think when they look at the prices of Dole and Port. Um, and, and if you think you have low yield and high price, if you're going to distill that, your, you know, your spirit price is off the charts. And then you end up with mm. a, a, a Port price on the shelf, which doesn't does it work? Um, mm. And so there was a bit of a, there's a few producers a few years ago that, that wanted that, wanted port 100% in the door of that, which is a very noble request, you know, it's a, or quest, actually. It's a very noble <laughs> quest. Mm. But the, re, the reality is that we're not there yet, if ever. Mm-hmm. We just cannot produce um, at the sort of price that the market would accept. Um, and so at the moment we're, we're starting from Portugal, which is great, high quality, as neutral as we can at that level of alcohol, um, and, and fresh distilled. And we're very happy with the, with the quality now, uh, which mm. is, which is far greater than it was 30 years ago or so. But having it hundred percent Maduro is not viable for the time being mm-hmm. financially. So where do you source these grapes? Uh, where do you source these grape spirit now? Out of the, the spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spirit uh, has a few distilleries in, for example, the Belgish Boa region, so mm-hmm. Deju area, um, large volumes there, um, you know, big, big flat land, high yields, mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. the sort of stuff that we're that we're looking for at mm-hmm. at low cost, which is important. Mm-hmm. Again, it's mm-hmm. it's a you know for, uh, the alcohol tends to be a question about very much asked about in the in WSET, and the people tend to focus a lot on that. It's it it shouldn't be that important because it is, you know, it is obviously a, a critical element of of fortifies, but mm. it's it's not important. 
you know, the, the, it's it's just there to create a a, a sweet style, um, mm -hmm. not there to you know to add an extra dimension. Well, it does obviously, but it's that's not mm -hmm. the point. And but mm -hmm. I know I think from a from a theory point of view, it always gets quite a lot of attention. Yeah. Cool. And then the general maturation, because it's also very important for port, right? Where, yeah. where do you store this stuff and uh, how do you age it? Um, yeah. But what, what are the most important factors there to know and the differentiating factors? Sure. So the, after the wine is made, so let's say September or October, it stays one winter in the Dura Valley. So from October till about March, we leave the wines in uh, large wood vats or stainless steel tanks. And the natural flow temperature of the door allows a sort of, you know, you could say a, a cold stabilization of the product. Mm -hmm. It's a bit, bit of an exaggeration to call it that way, but that's kind of what happens. But the end of April, uh, March, April, we shift the wines from the door down to Gaia on the coast. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Atlantic climate, higher humidity, milder temperature. The wines tend to age a bit lighter, the same bed, mm -hmm. just different opinions. But the wines tend to age a little more gracefully in, and slower in Gaia than they were in the door. Mm -hmm. um, and there's less evaporation as well. So the evaporation level in the door, because of the humidity, would be a lot higher mm -hmm. and we'll lose a lot more. Um, so this we age, at Simitri, we age 100% in Gaia. Um, the, the, once, the, once the wines arrive, we have a first assessment, the first assessment of what the wines are. And this is all very flexible. We tend to sort of explain the different styles very much by how they age, but it's very flexible. It's a very dynamic system. The mm -hmm. wines can change vessels if they are going, you know, through a different stage, or they're they're kind of telling us, well, this is more of a tonic than a ruby. It is quite mm -hmm. nice. Uh, but the idea is that if you want to create a ruby port style, which is the young, dark, fruity style, then you you don't want it to oxidize. You want mm -hmm. to retain its properties. And for that, you want the least oxygen contact possible. So you go with large wood vats. You have less wood contact, the wines mm. they keep for longer. So we're talking 10,000, 20, 50, 100,000 meters of wood vats with gigantic tanks, uh, oak or chestnut. Um, I've seen I've seen both. There might be a different woods. We're talking very old season mm -hmm. wood. Mm -hmm. They're not giving any flavor. It's just a deposit. But if, the, but if you want the wines to become a tawny, then you want your know, tawny color, which is the oxidized version. You've got these caramel, dry fruit, much lighter color. Then you want as much oxygen as possible in the, within the door of reality. And so mm -hmm. you put these wines into 550 to 600 liter oak barrels. You've got to increase the oak contact more air comes into the wine, the wines age much faster. Mm. Again, seasoned old barrels, oak, almost 100%, 100% so old seasoned casks. Um, and this is what red wines go through. This is the red wine. So you, you, can, you, can, you have the same base wine, you can actually have it for ruby and have it for tawny, depending on where the vessel goes mm. to. Um, and then, then you, we, the, the, the way that we classify the wines tends to be on a declassification level. So, for instance, the great wine that we do is the vintage port. 
And we decided we just for release after two years after the launch, not even two years, 20 months or so. Mm -hmm. So by March or April, the second year, we assess the one and we say, that is vintage portfolio. Mm -hmm. So we bottle it soon after. So even less than two years after the harvest, we are bottling that one without any fining or filtration. Mm -hmm. But if the wines, we taste the one and we go, eh, doesn't quite have it. Mm. Let's leave it. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, two, three, we taste the wines and we say, okay, does it have what it takes to be a late bottle? Mm -hmm. Does the name bottle later than it is? Mm -hmm. And if it does, great. We start bottling, filter, unfilter, depending on the style. If it's not, then the wine is already sort of five, six, seven years. We go, okay, well, then what do we do with it? Let's try and make it a tonic. Why not? Mm. So it's very flexible, right? Mm -hmm. to, to try and, and, and play with this. Um, the wine kind of tells us, I want to be a tonic, I want to be a tonic, or I want, I want to be a ruby. And we just mm. need to work our way around what the wine is telling us uh, mm. and, and drive it into a different category. Very well explained. Thank you. It's uh, much clearer than uh, most of the explanation the that I heard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also other ways to control the oxidation. It's uh, what the books is mentioning is racking and the top up levels of the of the barrels. Uh, how often do you use that? Or how common is that? Or how much attention do you pay to that I, one? I, look, obviously, then this is this is one of those cases that it's not just a port phenomenon, it's any oxidized product. The the bigger the, the headspace in a barrel, the more oxygen you're incorporating. Mm. Um, I think if you want to create a very rancio style, very mm -hmm. thick style, you would leave that headspace um, quite often and pro mm -hmm. probably on purpose. That's not the case necessarily on the port world. Um, we do tend to top up um, and racking is actually not that particularly common either um, mm -hmm. again the more you rack when you rack you're obviously taking a you're taking some of the leaves out which have reductive power and you're mm -hmm. bringing you're incorporating oxygen into it um but you know we, we, well these also add some texture so that's fine finally and at that age then we're talking definitely about very fine leaves. um so it's it's not that common for headspace to be left uncontrolled and mm -hmm. um, we do top we do tend to try and top up um it's not as important as a still wine dry wine because of you know, volatile acidity issues we don't mm -hmm. have that problem mm -hmm. um but we also don't want too much space mm -hmm. in the barrel that it becomes oxidized too fast you know, mm -hmm. if you if you taste the port, a twenty-year-old port, and you compare it, for example, with there are other factors, mind you, but if you compare it to a um, an, an Aussie an Aussie tawny style, they're mm -hmm. much thicker. They're much thicker than we are. Um, yes, there's more evaporation. So obviously, they age in pretty pretty dry conditions, um, but more much more rancid, um, and. Mm -hmm. I believe again. Actually, I, I am not entirely certain, but I do believe because of the headspace is like uh, a bit more for that extra uh, mm -hmm. evaporation, that extra.
extra oxidation. We don't do that. Mm -hmm. So what would be maybe the indication uh, for you when you classify uh, these kind of wines, if you want to do a vintage port, what? Because basically, this is the most celebrated style, right? And those are most long lived. So, what what are you yeah. looking for? Here? Um, look, a vintage port happens once every three, once every four years. There are a few guys making it every year. Uh, Peter Vinoval, for example, is producing Peter Vinoval vintage every year, but they have mm. reduced quantity. So they're producing mm. smaller volumes every year. So again. Uh, whether you, you would say it's an exceptional year or not, you still have to limit your volume to make sure that what you bottle as vintage is of top quality. So different mm -hmm. approaches. Um, we do once every three, once every four years, uh, but we produce a bit more what we do. Um, mm -hmm. And the what we're looking for is a wine that, look, let me put it this way. It's the fine wine of the portrait. So... When we talk about Tawny's and LB and late bottle vintages and reserves and whatever, we don't really talk about Tedwell. We don't talk about properties. We don't talk about the climatic conditions. Even in mm -hmm. even a late bottle vintage, which is a single year, the, the amount we talk about what happened in that climatic year is not that high. We touch on it, but nothing particularly uh -huh. important for the style. For vintage, it's all about what we had in that particular year. The conditions still. Level of ripeness, the harvest time, the acidity, and so on. Um, and so it's a very much a wine conversation more than a pork conversation. And we need what a great red wine needs to age well. We need balance, that's probably you know, the key fundamental thing. Obviously, for us, with the added dimensions of alcohol and sugar, we still want a very balanced wine from the start. Mm -hmm. But we need deep, deep color. Massive tannins, massive fruit component, um, full body for sure, um, and you know just power. It, it's an excess of a lot of things. If you have the opportunity to try a young British port, I think you all should. Delicious stuff. You can mm. drink it immediately uh, because there's so much body around the, the tannin structure that you actually don't feel that much tannic. Mm -hmm. um, but they're there. They're very much there, um, because it, those are the elements that will allow the wine to age for decades. And mm -hmm. it's the structure, it's the tannin, it's the fruit component, and it's the balance that it, that it has. Um, so that's what we're looking for. If if it's missing one of those elements, then we, we, it's not going to be a vintage. Mm -hmm. There is a single quinta vintage, single quinta, which is. They tend to they tend to happen on the years that was we did, didn't release the declared vintage at the top. Uh -huh. The top wine is from, and I'm talking here about main port houses, is the result of blending the different properties, the best of different properties, and that's the icon one. Mm -hmm. The in the years when we didn't do a vintage port declare, our top wine is the senior mm -hmm. So we bottle mm -hmm. it as one individual property. Wonderful stuff, great value for money. Top wine of that year, uh, but they do tend to mature a little faster. They don't have the extra uh -huh. components of the other one. Um, mm -hmm. In a blind tasting, it's not easy to pick which is which. Mm -hmm. um, but if you if you if, you know, if a student was to take was tasting wine, thinking very high quality, massive wine, chances are it's a, it's a declared vintage. 
if it's mm-hmm. very high quality, but a little softer, rounder, approachable, while useful, that's probably mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we go back uh, from, um, I'm, I don't really want to say from quality backwards, because, but maybe price backwards, yeah. what are the yeah. different um, styles that you, you make? No, it depends on the style, right? If you're mm-hmm. in the Ruby style, it would mm-hmm. be vintage port, um, single quinta vintage port. Um, then there's a very tiny category called crusted, which I, I don't think WSET touches on, so I'll, I'll forget about that one. Pretty cool product, but a rarity. Um, then you've got a two two categories that can be a bit confusing in terms of positioning. Usually, late bottle vintage comes up to the single teeth, mm-hmm. and then the reserve ruby, and then the entry level ruby. Mm-hmm. There are one or two producers that put the reserve ruby above the late bottle vintage. Mm-hmm. Rams is in the Six grape reserve is above the late bottle vintage in terms of price position. But mm-hmm. usually the LBV is above. If you look okay. at the tonings, it's an it's an age statement. Um, you've got the 50-year-old now, it's a very recent addition to the to the port category. You've got 50, 40, 30, 20, 10 reserve mm-hmm. tawny, entry-level tawny. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the Kujeta, which is a or single harvest, which is a tawny, single year. And the price positioning really depends on how well the predictor is, you know, where it sits on the spectrum of age. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's no limit of age. Mm-hmm. So seven years plus, and, and that's a reserve time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then whites have their own thing, but I don't think the realistic cares much for the white. Uh, you've got the entry level white, you've got the extra dry, the dry white. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a 10, 20, a 30, a 40, single harvest. So they have their own categories within the whites. Mm-hmm. Very niche. Mm-hmm. Super niche. Lovely products. Very niche. Because mm-hmm. it's also very confusing for a lot of people, and actually for consumers, if I work with these wines, that they think that if you drink a 20-year-old uh, townie, it's uh, actually 20 years old, <laughs> or was 20 years old when it was uh, bottled. It is not the case. Can you explain the method or the indications? Yeah, so if you look at a port, hand, a port bottle, um, you will notice, you will have to open you kind of see it from the outside, but to be certain, you have to open it. You'll notice that port comes in with two different stoppers, the driven cork and what we call a T-top, a technical cork, which is the one with small little wood or plastic top. That is the, the, the big difference in terms of wines that can age, wines that can't age. A vintage port, a single kingdom vintage port, a crusted and a traditionally bottled late bottle vintage. Mm-hmm. comes with a drip. That means unfined, unfiltered, bottled naturally, should be kept, lined down, ages beautifully, throw sediment, should be decanted before serving, consumed in two or three days. The T-top is what you will find in 99.9% of ports. That's mm-hmm. the LBV, most LBVs, reserves, entry levels, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and they all have the T-top. And the T-top means the wines were filtered before one, or at least they had a fining process that removed sediment. Mm. You should keep it upright. And it's ready to drink. Because of that fining and that filtration process, and because the oxidation happened in, in large vats or wood barrels, mm. it doesn't have the same ability to age 
um, we want you guys, you know, you guys as consumers to drink the wine as soon as you, as you, as you buy the bottle. Um, these can be kept open for two or three months once you open. No need to cancel. Mm. But they don't get better with age. So if you, you know, every bottle 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50, mm. you, will, you will find the bottling date either on the label or the back label. Mandatory mm -hmm. needs the bottle. Try to buy the the the, the early the, the 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 closest bottling date as possible. If you mm -hmm. find a 2023 20 year old, buy that. Mm -hmm. So a 20 year old in 2033 is not going to be a 30 year old. It's a 20 year old. You just wait a 10 year to drink it, and you gain nothing from it. Mm -hmm. So buy, drink. That's it. Uh, mm -hmm. Shelf life many years, but it's not getting better. That's the point. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's the big one. Mm. <laughs> and also the indication is mostly like a tasting profile, right? What you aim for. Yeah, it, it is, it is a, a strange concept in a way. Um, mm. But it is a, an organoleptic, a stylistic classification. So mm. if it, for every bottling, and not just for aged tonics, for every bottling that we do, there needs to be an IVDP. Uh, again, the Port Wine, Port Dora Wine Institute. There needs to be uh, an authorization that that bottling will fit into the style that we are bottling. Mm. And mm -hmm. so, when you when we're doing a a twenty year old, and we say and we want to, you know, we had a blend twenty year old, we made the blend, ready to bottle, send a sample, and they need to say it looks, it smells, tastes like a twenty year old. You may you may go ahead. Mm. Uh, which doesn't necessarily mean it is a 20-year-old on average, which is kind of sometimes how we, the industry, tend to say it. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It could be younger mm -hmm. than 20, it could be older than 20. You can't be much younger than 20. You can't be much older than 20 to achieve the style. They're pretty mm -hmm. good at it. They're pretty consistent in the way they evaluate the wines. But as a consumer, you really don't know what you're getting. Mm -hmm. and that's the reality. It's not, not perfect. Not a, not a perfect system, to be honest. Uh, mm -hmm. But it is a system that, that has worked very well and it continues to do. Cool. Thank you very much. Pretty uh, extensive and professional explanation, as I expected. <laughs> I still have one uh, question because obviously also the, what uh, you mentioned, we mm, haven't really touched on Whiteboard, but I think it's a very minor uh, proportion, also not only of the production, but also what uh, wine professionals uh, are expected to know of. Um, so, but there is another, um, or actually a very important uh, term in terms of port production, and I think it's beneficial. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, and then what are the most important, maybe insider knowledge, what we should know about uh, beneficial? I knew this was coming. It's always a <laughs> WSET special. Um, the beneficial is is um, again, it's a part of the production. It's a part of port. Uh, and and he be you know here between the two of us, obviously mm -hmm. this is going to be public, but I, I I have no problem in saying it. I I would like the WSC to focus on things that are far more important mm. than the WSC. Yes, it's mm. a fundamental aspect for, but it doesn't speak to consumers. It mm -hmm. speaks to trade. It speaks to the wine geeks like ourselves and yeah. the wine students. But to the public, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a it is a fundamental part of the wine industry. Um, so beneficio is it's effectively a grant given by the IVDP mm -hmm. by a, by the authority 
for the yearly production of gold. So you looking at stock levels from the industry and looking at sales, um, the IVDP, and obviously there's a discussion within the trade, um, the IVDP will come out every year saying this year there will be X peepish. That's the, the, usually the, the scale, so 550 liters per people, uh per barrel. So there will be X peepish that the industry can fortify. And depends on the vineyard quality. You know, that's, that's where the classification A to G comes into play. Some are outside the classification, um, but the higher grades have beneficiary. The lower grades are not entitled to beneficiary. Um, so the better, it's a, it's a way to incentivize quality. So the more higher letters you have, the more you are authorized to produce port, if you wish to do so. So you're given a paper, you're given a paper as a producer. Let's say you have one hectare of vineyard. Mm-hmm. And a hectare will allow you to produce five or six people. And you're given a and, and all your hectare produces pork. You're given a paper that allows you to make that hectare and then fortify that hectare. Hmm. And you are paid to produce. All right. So along with the beneficiary, there's a payment, mm-hmm. which is higher for higher letters, lower or inexistent for the lower. So if you're a letter A. You get more money. Letter B, a little less. Letter C, you get a bit more, mm-hmm. a bit less, and so on. Um, and so you can take that money. With that money, obviously, you pay pay the harvests, you, know, you pay your costs, and then you produce the port, and then you, you can sell the port or 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 bottle yourself. So this is the sort of the model. So then there is the other model, which is I have a hectare. I don't want to vinify. My grapes. I don't have a wine. So I'm going to sell my grapes and my paper to those producers that would like to have more wine to to um you know to to produce for brands or for whatever it may be. Um so the major the bigger players, ourselves included, uh, but all the other main companies will often buy from farmers their grapes and their benefits. Mm-hmm. Because we have needs to produce a more volume-driven stuff, um, and we have need for those grapes on that beneficiary. Mm-hmm. So we have our own beneficiary, but we'll also go into the market to buy that brand to produce. So this is all very good. It was in you know, it can be the law comes in the in the thirties, and it has a very uh, a very um, interesting social benefit because if you are a farmer and you know you've got a couple of hectares and that's your living unfortunately grapes are paid pretty low in the door it's a bit of a structural issue but the beneficio is a very good amount of money for the farmer to be able mm. to sustain its capacity its livelihood and not just abandon the business and go elsewhere. So the beneficiary has that uh, added sort of social benefit, if you want. As I say, mm-hmm. it, it impacts the livelihood of a lot of farmers that otherwise, and I'm going to get there, otherwise they wouldn't be able to. Um, the, the, the downside of it is that 
it artificially keeps the prices of those grapes high. Because mm -hmm. if you didn't have the beneficio accompanied by a payment, right? If you just had the grant to produce and that sell, the market would dictate the value of those grapes or those wines. Mm -hmm. And then you would, you know, it would eventually self-balance. Mm -hmm. Where it would sit at the end of that self-balance, no one quite knows. But you know that there's voices in the industry that would like to keep the beneficio. There are voices in the industry that would not want the beneficio and let the free market dictate the price of the grapes. Mm -hmm. There's an added element here, which is the dry ones, the still ones. Let's say instead of one hectare of beneficio, I had half hectare of beneficio, and the other hectare, I did not have beneficio. I still had grapes, right? What do I do with those grapes that don't have benefits? I'm not being paid. I don't have a paper, I'm not being paid for those grapes. So you have half hectare, which, whose, which grapes are incredibly valuable because of the beneficiary. And you have half hectare of grapes without beneficiary that are worth whatever the market is ready to pay, but it's mm -hmm. very, very low. Mm -hmm. So the beneficiary subsidizes in a way, the grapes for still wine. Mm. And that's why, at the moment, a lot of the still wine grapes are being sold so cheap. Mm. So, because at least that, that is the argument of those against the benefits. And I, and I, I tend to agree with that assessment. It's mm. a very difficult one, very polarizing. Um, but, but the benefits you does indirectly affect the prices of the dollars, still red whites. Mm. Um, and that's why it, it, it there's a lot of people selling dollar grapes or still ones at too low price, below what they actually cost. Mm -hmm. So if you would take out the beneficiary, these grapes would have to go up in price. Mm -hmm. and, the, and again, the market would self, would self adjust, but there would be a big um, reframing of the the dodo industry. The price on shelves would go up yeah. across the, um, yeah. and so this is another concern, or not, because the direction of the Doro is should be making premium ones, not yeah. making entry level stuff. The region does not have the yields or yeah. the low cost to compete, and so there is this sort of um, weird situation where the port industry subsidizes the Doro while keeping things a bit artificial on both sides. Every coin has two sides, right? So for, for us, for example, uh, Somalis uh, or, or also consumers, uh, it's very <laughs> advantageous because I think the still uh, Duoro wines, uh, the red wines are basically a steel. But it is yes. basically a steel, right? Um, it's of <laughs> course for us. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but, but again, the, the other side says, if you would take the beneficiary, um, a lot of the farmers would probably just give up and say, well, yeah. I'm yeah. out. Or not. You know, if the market was prepared to pay higher for the Dota ones, and eventually that high payment would go down to the farmers, excellent. Yeah. But who knows, right? Is the market prepared? I don't know, frankly. Um, and then, then I, but I think there's work in the industry to continue building premium credentials with the Dota. That's where, it, that's where the, the region has to be there. It cannot compete yeah. with 
with the great majority of the wine world. We cannot compete in price. So we mm. got to push up the profile of the region. Um, and, and eventually that question might not be a problem anymore. But it's, mm. who knows? It's a bit utopical, but, but that is the end goal eventually. Um, yeah. Cutting other than fees would be, would be problematic. It would all be a bit of a, no one knew very well what, how, how things would, where things would stabilize that. Um, mm. But it would certainly be um, what um, in the future needs to happen sooner or later. Uh, what, what are the biggest trends for uh, what, what you see now in terms of port? So in terms of sales and also in terms of production, how is the market changing for a port wine? Um, look, it's no denying that the volumes of port have been on a lowering trend. There's no, um, you know, there's no hiding it. Um, mm. So if you look at the overall port sales, they have been gradually declining. Um, the good news is, goes um, along what I was saying. The good news is that the the door is premiumizing. So um, especially on port, you start to see the lower end of the scale, the entry level, the twenty right, decreasing. But which is usually the French market, the Belgian market, um, which are more the aperitif older consumers. What you do see is the premium uh, market, the rubies, the ruby reserves, the LBBs, 10, 20, particularly these four, mm -hmm. going in, the, in very much in the right direction. Um, and so you have less consumption, but those consuming are premium, uh, are, are moving up uh, mm -hmm. the, the scale. Particularly 10 and 20 have seen massive growth, massive growth. And it's been the success story for the industry of the last 10, 15 years. Um, and so that is the right direction that the industry needs to move on. And then you've got a lot of different innovation, which is the other end. You know, you've got the Rosé port that came out a few mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, Croft created that. Um, you've got port in a can, um, which was created by a very tiny producer, um, and, and, and then you have a few other guys following, um, including ourselves with Coburn's uh, until recently. Um, then you've got... Um, the very special releases of very old stuff, like, you know, we had the 1882 Grams Nubly, really interesting, successful, people paying, you know, luxury prices for port, great packaging. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there's uh, this cocktail, you know, this is an important mm -hmm. tonic, um, new, new things that are coming out. There's a, you know, we did a Grams blend series, number five, number 12, that look, Fantastic. You know, they look exactly what young people want to see in a bar. So it's it's there is a, an innov an innovative atmosphere now in the in the port industry, which is just great to see. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, we'll see. It, look, the 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 industry from the outside and the fortified wine world from the outside might look like, eh, where is it going? The consumers are drinking less, whatever. Overall, if you look at the value side, it's it's a it's a resilient industry and doing what it needs to be doing. So you know, there's 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 hope that 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 actually the category has um, legs to continue uh, its path uh, towards where it needs to go. Remain in consumers' eyes, remain with the right distribution, um, and and. I think we've remained pretty positive. At the same time that you see the Dodo growing really, really well, 
um, and and beginning, as you say, to 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 show the world that there's really good stuff making with its pricing. You know, yet yet to be completely sort of um, decided, as we were talking before. But in terms of quality of deliveries, people are are recognizing it as truly a, a fine wine region. So, pretty exciting times on both angles. Um, mm. One slightly decreasing, but premiumizing. The other one increasing in volume and premiumizing. So pretty cool. Mm. Well, I also just uh, have two new cocktails, three new cocktails actually, um, on the menu with port wine, two with uh, red and one with white, but you already mentioned the port wine. But also if you mix it, as a, if you have a talented uh, mixer in the at the bar, it's, it's a very versatile product and you can utilize it as as, as you want. And also yeah. then you have trends on the market which are basically screaming the, the opposite of what... Uh, of what port actually represents, like the sweetness and the high alcohol, right? And uh, the market market trend is the quite opposite. But on the other yeah. hand, it's uh, I, I'm just happy to hear that you are positive. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I am. I mean, look, we have to be. Yeah, I mean, we have to. Be, yeah. Right? But yeah. but I am positive, especially because you're absolutely right. People are going towards uh, low sugar, lower alcohol. That's a trend, right? When consumers are actually consuming that, that's the other. Big issues. Young consumers are drinking less wine than um, my generation was at their age, and so it's 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 a worry for the wine industry. But I I do think that there are, you know, there are there's a space for every category, um, as long as the category remains active and relevant. And you know, if we stayed in our little port world and said, no, no, we are drink, we are drank after dinner. Under candlelit lights and with a cigar, and only men drink it. Women have to leave the room. I mean, yeah. If we that that would that would be the the, the you know the nineteenth century view. And if we stayed there, we'd be dead, and we deserved it. <laughs> we yeah. would deserve to lose this this fight. Yeah. And so we need to keep tre- we need to trendy, you know, as, as trendy port can be. But we need to be relevant in the eyes of the younger consumer. Um, and we're doing every bit that we can. And I think cycles come and go and styles come and go. But the classics tend to stay. And if you're true mm-hmm. to yourself, if you don't touch the basic side of your of who you are, yes, you gotta keep innovating. Yes, you gotta be continue to be, you know, follow some of the trends, but who you are should change. And and mm-hmm. we're not changing trends. Trying to adapt by maintaining the, the, the basic framework uh, of the port world. And I think eventually be consistent and and, and be active. You gotta be in the market. Um people will recognize that and there are people who are happy to to follow the great classics. And and port is a classic. Um, I think there will always be the interest of the consumer to at least try a classic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm hopeful. Cool. And also the industry and the Symington family would uh, should be grateful that uh, people like you are representing this fine product. So till t- t- they have these talented people that the hope is, the candle of hope is uh, lighting. <laughs> thank you. Man. Cool. Thank you. George, thank you very much. Thank it you. was very, um, it was a great deep dive, I think, and a lot of uh, internal knowledge, but we got to hear in this episode. So thank you very much. And I uh, Wish you a great success with your Simington wines in the future. Very kind, Mate. Thank you for having me again. And uh, yeah, I mean, 
any anytime and make sure to go to the door yeah i will us. i will i need some sunshine anyway so <laughs> <laughs> good thank you very good thank you